Uh, this morning we're going to be in chapter 26, and so if you want to turn your Bibles there, we are skipping over source chapter 24 and 25. And so just to kind of bring you up to date, if you remember, Paul was um, uh, arrested in Jerusalem. He was brought to trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they they were they was just kept breaking out in riots. There were those who wanted to kill Paul, and so eventually the Roman soldiers there whisked Paul out of town and get him to Caesarea, where Paul was then uh, put before trial before the Roman governor of the area named Felix. Uh, Felix couldn't find anything wrong with him, but he wanted uh, Paul to bribe him, and so he kept him in jail. Paul did not bribe him. And then a new Roman ruler took over, a guy named Festus. Uh, Festus once again put Paul on trial. But Festus couldn't quite figure out what in the world the Jews had, why they had a problem with this Paul guy. In fact, he said, uh, I don't see any reason or issue with, with Paul. And yet he wouldn't let Paul go and asked Paul, do you want to go to trial in Jerusalem? And Paul says, I, I feel like I've made a good defense of myself. And I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They want to kill me there. So send me, as is my right as a Roman citizen, to Rome, where I'll stand trial before Caesar. And that brings us to today. Festus has to write a letter to Caesar that he sends with Paul to articulate what in the world are the charges and the accusations against Paul. Festus doesn't understand the accusations. So he brings in the surrogate king, uh, King Herod Agrippa II, uh, who understands Jewish, the way the Jewish world works. He is a Jew himself. He understands the Old Testament Jewish laws and tra- Jewish traditions. And so he brings Agrippa in and says, Agrippa, hey, let's meet with Paul and see if you can figure out what in the world, what are the accusations? What do I try or charge Paul with as I send him to Caesar? And that's where we pick up this morning in chapter 26 as Paul is now going to meet before Festus and Agrippa. Pick it up in verse 1. Hear God's word. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word, that the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, this week I was watching um, Steven Spielberg's um, movie, Lincoln, which stars uh, Daniel Day uh, Lewis. And I was struck in and reminded by uh, that account of Lincoln in his life um, was just how much Lincoln told stories. If you read the biographies of Lincoln, he was actually a master storyteller. And what you actually see in the movie is that whenever Lincoln faces a difficult conversation, when someone is challenging his views, he's in a sticky situation, he answers it by telling a story. That's interesting. That's the way in which Paul defends the gospel here this morning. That Paul, much like Lincoln, will share a story. He is called to make a defense of the resurrection, a defense of the gospel, and he does so by sharing the story of the gospel. But not just any story, sharing his story. But at the core, at the axis in the center of Paul's story, at the story of his life, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to see three things about the story that Paul tells this morning. It's not like the way we tell stories. We tell stories to kind of like chicken soup for the soul. They can be true or not, but they come with a point and we all learn our lesson and we move on. But that's not how the stories of the Bible necessarily go. The stories of the Bible come with more power and more punch. With three reasons as to why uh, this morning and looking at the resurrection story. So the resurrection story, first I want you to see, the resurrection story claims something. It claims. It makes truth claims. It makes propositions. 
In the last couple of years, there has been this um, growth in the last couple of decades, this understanding that the Bible is a narrative, that there's a grand narrative. You even heard Ed talk about it this morning in our worship, that we, we, we are following each and every week the story of the gospel, the creation, the fall, the redemption, the restoration. That's the broad narrative of the Bible. And then within the Bible, within that larger narrative, there's all these sub-narratives, these small plots. The Bible is indeed the greatest literary work in the world. The issue has been that those who love the narrative, some have said, well, isn't that nice? And they begin to look at the Bible as merely this wonderful story, an inspirational story for which we get, we can, we get power and motivation for our life. But what they say is the Bible is not something, it's a story, it's not full of propositions. And here they miss something. That the Bible is indeed a narrative, and there are stories throughout, but each of those narratives are claiming truth. They are giving us propositions to be believed. For example, the account of the resurrection, which the way Paul shares it this morning, it's never articulated as being some inspiring fable. There is this man, Jesus, and like a phoenix, he rised into the air. And we are to be inspired by by this man, Jesus. No, the, the Bible is communicated and the resurrection is communicated here by Paul as being a truth claim, as actually happened, as being a proposition to either be believed or rejected. At the very end of this account, Paul is interrupted by Festus. And what does Festus say to Paul? He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. And what does Paul say back to him? He says, no, 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 no. I'm not nuts. I'm not in the crazy house. Festus says, you're really smart, but you let all your, your, your smarts go to your head. You've lost, you're in the crazy loony bin. Paul says, no way. And I love what he says. The reason why he says he's not in the loony bin the reason why he's, what he says is the truth is in his answer to Festus, he points, and we'll see it in verse 26. He looks at Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know better than a Festus. Festus, he's new around here. He's not heard or seen like you and I have. And here's what he says in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For these things have not been done in a corner. In other words, the resurrection was not some fable that was made up. Paul is saying, listen, the resurrection is a proposition, it is a truth claim, and there is evidence for it. You know, many people try to attack the evidence of the resurrection. For example, one of the things that skeptics will say about the resurrection is this. That they say, well, the early church just kind of wrote the resurrection in the Bible. They needed a happy ending, and so they, they, they're trying to develop a new religion, and so they wrote this resurrection because, man, that's pretty amazing when someone rises from the dead. That doesn't happen every day, and so they create this kind of resurrection account. But the reality is, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses. And in fact, he says, if you want to know whether the resurrection happened or not, you can go ask them. They saw him alive. Other people would say, well, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he was just feigning death. Well, listen, the Romans in, uh, in world history, the Romans have this proficiency. They had this great skill that, they, that goes above all other countries in the world, all other nations and kingdoms. They had this wonderful skill. It was called death. They knew how to kill people better than just about anybody. I've been reading this book, Just Mercy. It's about uh, this lawyer who particularly goes and, and seeks to be, uh, uh, represent those who are on death row. And there's account after account there about um, various capital punishments, execution in the United States that have gone bad. We as Americans, we're really terrible at putting people to death. 
We don't like it. Our executions don't go well. The poison doesn't work or the electric chair doesn't work. And so we're really bad at it. The Romans are very, very, very good at it. And in fact, the gospel accounts go into great detail around the death of Jesus to prove that indeed Jesus was dead. Some say, some skeptics say, that it was psychological wish fulfillment. That they were, they were going through this, they were so traumatized by the death of Jesus that they kind of, they, 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 it was, they, it was what they longed for more than anything else was that Jesus would rise from the dead. And so they, they made it up, they, they forced themselves to believe that it was true. But if you look at the gospel accounts, both before Jesus died and after Jesus died, the, the disciples didn't believe it was possible. They are more surprised than anybody that Jesus is raised, risen from the dead. Even when Jesus tells them, hey guys, I'm going to die, I'm going to be risen from the dead in three days, they don't believe him. They don't believe him. They're not looking at the resurrection and going, this has to happen. They're not waiting outside the grave going, when's he going to come out? When's he going to come out? In fact, what do you see? The day in which Jesus is rose from the dead, risen from the dead, and he testifies to the women, the first test witnesses to see Jesus risen, what are they going to do? They're going to go anoint his body with perfume because it's on the third day. Because what happens to bodies on the third day? In the, in the language of the King James, when Lazarus comes out of the grave on the third day, they said, he stinketh. He stinketh. There's a reason why he stinketh, because he is dead. They did not expect. They were not anointing him because he had, had just had a long nap. They were anointing him because he, they, they thought he was dead, and they had no expectation that he was going to rise again. You see, according to the New Testament, there are two facts that give rise to the belief of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the two facts. That there is an empty tomb, and that he made many appearances to people. You need both. You need both for this to be a rational argument, the resurrection to be rational and reasonable. If you just have the empty tomb and you have no witnesses, people could say, well, someone stole the body. The Romans discarded the body somewhere. Grave robbers came after the body and took it somewhere. So, you, so if, you have no empty, if you have the empty tomb but no witnesses, you have a problem. But if you have just appearances, but the body is still there, you can say, well, the disciples hallucinated. They did have that wish fulfillment, but we can show you the body. But if you have both an empty tomb and if you have appearances, then you now have a rational, reasonable argument. One pastor actually uh, quotes a particular blogger, um, a theological blogger named Michael Patton. And Michael Patton makes this point about Christianity. He says, of all the religions of the world, of the world Christianity is the most falsifiable religion. What he means is it is the most fragile of all the religions. It's the easiest religion to discredit and to debunk. Because all you have to do is prove that this one dude didn't rise from the dead. Didn't rise from the dead. All the other religions, it's much more difficult. You see, for instance, Hinduism and Buddhism, they're not rooted in historical circumstances. They're just kind of out there. They're vague teachings. They're not actually rooted in some sort of historicity. Whereas also in Islam and Mormonism, there's not actually some historical truth claims or it's not a public historic truth claim. Both in Islam and Mormonism, an angel comes and delivers a vision or a dream and everybody just has to believe the person who has the dream. But in Christianity, it is the most fragile because in Christianity, we have a public ministry, we have a public death, a public resurrection, public appearances, and then those who publicly saw Jesus went out and proclaimed about Jesus' public resurrection. And all it takes is for people to say, the body is there. We did not see him, 
And yet we have hundreds and hundreds of people who claim the evidence of Jesus, that they saw him. The resurrection is an article of Christian faith, but it is not an irrational or unreasonable or blind faith. It is reasonable. In fact, Paul says to Festus, I'm not crazy. I'm smart. You just said it. I'm being imminently rational in this moment. You see, the Christian story and the story of the resurrection is different than other kind of religious inspiring stories. And it's different in this. It claims to be real. It's a truth claim. The second thing I want you to see about the resurrection and what's different about this story and what makes it so powerful and persuasive is that the resurrection is a story that collides. It's a story that collides. In longhand, I want to put it this way. The, story, the resurrection is a story that collides with our story. There's an intersection. You notice what's interesting about what Paul does here. The majority of what he says is what? His own personal testimony. It's interesting. Paul is a man of unbelievable apologetic learning. And this is often the pressure that we feel about testifying to the faith. Is that we think we got to know all the details and the facts. And I would say you need to know some details. I just gave you some, right? To prove that Christianity is reasonable and rational. But the main means, the primary means in which Paul will proclaim the truth of the resurrection is through his personal testimony and that what he experienced is a trajectory change when he ran into the resurrected lord you say we know there are events in life there are days in life that change the trajectory of your life there are there are days in life that can there are things in life that enter your world that are so awful that it colors the rest of your life it sends you down a path of suffering and sorrow and hopelessness and despair I was thinking about that this week. Meredith texted me. It was Wednesday or Thursday. And if you know on 27, she's turning into Publix. And she's turning left. And she sent me a text that says, when I, I was, she was turning left and had the green arrow. Someone ran the red light coming down the hill and cut through and almost hit. And she, it was right on the side where Chapel was sitting. And I was thinking about this reality. What if that text or that phone call had been different? What if she hadn't been able to slam on the brakes in time? That's a trajectory-changing phone call. That's one of those moments in your life when you remember that the day my dad walked out, life changed. The day I found out he was cheating on me, life changed. The day my brother or sister passed away, life changed. The day, the day she broke up with me, life changed. You see, there are moments and days in life, and by the way, Without the resurrection, guess what you have? All of life is trying to enjoy it while you wait for those terrible days. That's what life becomes. Where you simply wait for the next bad day, the next trajectory-changing day. But here's the, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the question for us. If there can be such terrible days that they send us in a terrible direction and trajectory of life, could there be a day in which there's such good news brought into your life that it, it reverses the trajectory? Could there be a day when there's such joyous news that it actually brings joy and hope and life and brings light to your life? The answer to Paul is yes, because he experienced it. The majority of what Paul, the content of Paul's defense here before Festus and Agrippa is he shares his own story. He shares his, what we call the BC, before Christ, his testimony. This is how I was before Jesus invaded my life. And his life, he says, listen, guys, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous for the law. I loved law keeping. He looks at Agrippa and says, you know, you and I are good Jews. 
We both had to memorize, memorize the Torah, memorize the whole of the Old Testament. Remember Leviticus? That was brutal to memorize, right? You and I are bros. This is, we have this kind of same background. But you know that? I was even more conservative than you, Agrippa. I was a Pharisee. I was a conservative. I was a fundamentalist and an Orthodox Jew. No one hated Christians as much as I did, Agrippa. No one. I was convinced that I would need to do whatever I could to stop them. Man was, Paul was a man who scrupulously kept the law in every way he possibly could, and he hated everyone who wouldn't and didn't. And so he says in his testimony, I was on my way to persecute Christians, and it is then trajectory change to his life. Why? Because he met the resurrected Jesus. If you're going to be persuaded of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, the reality of it has to collide with your own story. I want you to see specifically how it collides with Paul's story this morning. We'll see maybe how it could collide with yours. There's an interesting thing here when when Jesus invades Paul's life, when he runs into him and shows him the light of his glory on the Damascus road. He says this in verse 14, Paul, Saul, Saul, why why have you been persecuting me? And then he says something strange. Jesus says, it's so hard for you to kick against the goads. What an odd comment. Mostly because you're going, what in the world is a goad? A goad is what a shepherd would use. It was a sharp stick that they would use to guide the flock and to guide sheep that were moving outside the flock and going in a wrong direction. Because sheep are dumb, right? Sheep will just kind of, they got their head down, they're eating grass, and the next thing you know, they're in a ravine. Or they fall off a cliff. This is what sheep do. And so the shepherd, a good shepherd, has to come along and poke them to get them back to the places where there's good food, where there's safety, where there's blessing for the, shep- for the sheep. And what, what Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, you have been, you've been kicking against the goads I've been bringing into your life. What's the goad that Paul is kicking against? It says he's persecuting who? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against? What, what is he saying? Paul, I'm the goad. Jesus, the gospel is the goad saying, you want blessing? You want to know God? You got to know the gospel. You got to know Jesus. Here's the, re- the, re- the thing, the way the, the resurrection is going to inevitably collide with your life is this. It's because it will always inevitably collide with you because it confronts the greatest needs of your heart. Let's be looking at the story of Paul. What's Paul's greatest need? If you were to look at the life of Paul, what, what would Paul's greatest need, his greatest longing, his greatest desire be? It would be to be, to, to be before the Lord a man who God looks at and says, you have perfectly kept my law in every, absolute, every way, externally in the way you've behaved, internally you've never thought a wrong thought, and before me in the eyes of God you're acceptable. That's the greatest longing of Paul's heart. But if you actually look at where Paul also gives his autobiographical account in Philippians 3, we see his view of the law then. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, and I'll read through verse 9. He says this about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, in comparison to everybody else, he's like, man, I kept the law in comparison to everybody else. And he goes on to describe it. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, after the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. No one can see, no one's ever seen me do anything wrong. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And here's the kicker. And being found in him, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
What does Paul have in Christ Jesus that he could not have or did not have through his own attempts to keep the law? Righteousness. Only through the work of Jesus could he be declared right before God. The greatest longing, the greatest desire of Paul's heart, it would be to stand before God and God says, you are righteous in my sight, Paul. And Paul realizes all my wonderful law keeping, I've done as best as I could. I've done better than everybody else. It is not enough. It is not enough. And the only means by which I get the greatest longing of my heart is if there is a Jesus who died for my sins and if there's a Jesus who rose so that I would know that my sins have been completely paid for. That's the only way I get the greatest longing of my heart. You see, the gospel resolves the greatest plot lines of your life. Now, you might ask, I ask you this. Now, how does this apply to you? How can we, how can we, what aspects of the resurrection would collide with your life? Because for most of you, I mean, you're good people. You know the Ten Commandments and yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't know it like Paul, right? I mean, I'm looking at you. The greatest longing of your heart is not to keep Old Testament law. And so what is the greatest longing of your heart? I think Paul gives us a great kind of synopsis of some of the ways in which the resurrection can collide with our stories and the greatest needs and desires of our hearts. Look at verse 18. When God sends Paul out to proclaim the gospel, here's the gospel that Paul is going to proclaim, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to, the, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. These are just four examples of how the story of the resurrection might collide with your story. Let's see if I can explain each of these very briefly. It says first that, that we are, our eyes are opened so that we are turned from darkness to light. You know what the, the great thing, the great connection, you know what light always symbolizes in, in the scriptures is hope. It's hope. And light is contrasted with what? Darkness. The reason why the resurrection is so profound and why it's so important is because it gives light in the midst of a world that is otherwise extremely bleak. And which what the resurrection does, it begins to engage with the wall that you run into at the end of all things that makes all the rest, all the joys in your life pointless. Because where does it all end? Death. Ain't nothing after that. Gone. But in the resurrection, what do we get? We get hope. We get hope. You see, for some of you, the greatest need, the greatest desire of your life, your life maybe have have so much sorrow and so much darkness in the last year, so much difficulty perhaps in the last decade, that what the greatest longing of your heart is for someone to tell me there is hope in the midst of the suffering. You ever stood in a room with a father who's holding his baby for 10 minutes, and that's the only baby, the only 10 minutes he's ever going to get with that child? You ever stood in that room The greatest desire of the human heart in that moment is to say this. Is there a hope? Will I have a love and a life here that I can experience with this child that goes beyond simply the 10 minutes I get? In the resurrection, there is hope. For some of you, the greatest longing of your heart is power. That you need power. If the dead weren't raised, it's interesting... He compares here that a life, of, a life that is a power, brought from the power of Satan to the power of Jesus, to the power of God. See, the power of Satan gives you this kind of powerful life, this kind of wonderful life. And here's the power, what the power is, to live utterly and completely for yourself. To live a small existence in which you have the, the appetite and the life and the power to say, I'm going to get what I want. But the power of God is radically different because the, re- the resurrection gives you the power to actually live a great life, a grand life. Now, oddly enough, it may look small in the world's eyes, 
But the resurrection actually gives you the power to live a selfless life. To live a selfless life. Let me see if I can give you an example of this. When, when, a, when a, a crazy man, full of fury and rage, in a, in a racist stupor, enters into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and guns down people, and the family members go to his, his first hearing, and they yell out to him as he's entering the, the courtroom, we forgive you. Does that look like strength? It is strength. That's power. You know what? That, that's unbelievable power. When someone can say, do the worst thing imaginable to you, and it doesn't crush you, that means you're made of steel. And that steel only comes from recognizing that that is what God has done for you, that in, in the grace of the, of the resurrection, you, you become untouchable. You become untouchable. For some of you, the greatest long of your heart is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It's to know you're forgiven. To know that, that, that you, all of us, we have that one thing. <laughs> From some of us, it's those many things. That one thing that makes you go, I don't think this is forgivable. Right? Maybe what you did at that sorority party two years ago to that girl. And maybe to what you did, what you made your girlfriend do when she was pregnant, with what you do with that pregnancy. And maybe what you did in that moment of anger, how you disciplined one of your children. What's that thing for you? For some of you, the greatest need of your heart is to know that I am forgiven, that God has forgiven me. And the deepest part of your, of your heart, you know, I am broken, I have done awful things, and man, I would be ashamed. You walk into this room and you're pleading, please don't let anybody know what I've done. Please don't let anybody know what I've done. And the greatest long of your heart is to know, man, that my sins are forgiven. Darren Aronofsky, uh, who's the director of the movie Noah, he said this. That movie came out a couple years ago. In the midst of the interviews related to it, he was asked this question. If God was going to destroy the whole world, would he, would you, Darren, be on the boat? And his response was this. I don't think so. I'm simply too big of a sinner to be saved. I'm simply too big of a sinner to be saved. But the the resurrection actually says that that's not true. You know what the resurrection, how it, how it, how it con- convinces us that there is no sin in which for Jesus, Jesus has not paid? It's a receipt. That's what the resurrection, that's what it serves in the redemptive process. You see, if you go into a store and you buy a shirt and you're walking out of the store and the security guy is there and he says, how do I know you've paid for that shirt? You pull out what? The receipt. How do we know that Jesus has paid for our sins? The resurrection is the receipt. That your sins, that he has drank the last drop of God's wrath. There is no more penalty for you, and you are utterly and absolutely forgiven. The greatest longing of the human heart. One last one, it says here, that you get a place amongst those who are sanctified. Now, that's kind of odd language for us. For some of you, the greatest need of your, human, of your heart is for someone, for someone to look at you and say, you're holy. You're beautiful. That word sanctified means holy. It means set apart. It means God looks at you differently than he looks at the rest of the world. And it's interesting in this word to be sanctified, the verbiage there actually refers to a state of being as a result of a past action. Now, we tend to think of sanctification as this slow, plotting process that's going to happen over time. But also, there's something called definitive sanctification where God declares you holy in his sight. That's what he says you get in the resurrection. You see, in the resurrection, God looks at you now and says that you are beautiful and you're acceptable. It's not simply that you've been forgiven, as great as that is. 
but you're now sanctified. That means God doesn't look at you as, as being kind of a big fat zero who I had to forgive your sins. But now, not only does he look at you as someone who's been forgiven, but also the righteousness of Jesus has been put on your account so that when he sees you, he sees you as, as beautiful. He sees you as he sees Jesus. The resurrection will only become persuasive to us when not only is it rational to us, but also we begin to see that it collides. Its implications collide with our story. Has it collided with your story? Man, it smacked Paul straight up across the face. A trajectory changed Paul's life. Now, the truth claims of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection that I've just been going through here for a moment, they are so radical. They are so grand. They are so trajectory changing. They, it is the goad in your side. You have to deal with it. Right? If someone walks up to you today and starts stabbing you as you're on your way to class, you go, I, I think I'm going to have to deal with this person. The resurrection is a goad. You have to deal with this. It is a matter of life and death, right? You cannot reject this. That what I'm saying here is that the resurrection, the story of the resurrection demands a response. It demands something of you. The resurrection demands that we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a evidence that demands a verdict to take the name of the book. Look at verse 28. Agrippa said this to Paul. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would love to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am except for these chains. Paul, Agrippa says, okay, I've heard your defense, Paul, but are you, trying, are you actually trying to get me to be a Christian? And what's Paul's answer? Yeah. Oh, and everybody else here, I'm trying to get to become a Christian. Do you, do you understand what Paul does here? He is demanding a response. Jim Whittle, who preaches for, for me quite often here, I think he, one of the things he loves to say is that particularly evangelicals, that we have no idea how to go in for the kill. In particular, us Presbyterians, because we have no practice with it, do, do we? We never do an altar call. Paul says, you repent and you come to Jesus. You have to make a decision here as to who this Jesus is. Paul says, oh, Agrippa, I'm in prison, you're free. I'm poor, you're rich. I'm powerless, you have all kinds of power, but I'd rather you be in my shoes. Because my shoes, I believe in the resurrected Lord's. Now, there's a couple ways in which you can respond to the story of the resurrection. That we see here in this text. The first way is the, the way of Agrippa and Festus. How do they respond? It's scoffing. Festus, what does he say to Paul? Paul, you're crazy. You're nuts. You've, you're in the loony bin, bro. You're, you have, like, you've gone over the edge. This is too much. Paul says, what are you talking about? I am in my right mind. I am reasonable and rational. He says, you know when I was crazy? It's interesting. He actually, as he describes, Paul describes who, how his mindset as he went to persecute the church um, in Damascus. He says he had raging fear. The Greek word is actually this word, amenemos, which means mania or madness, in which he was so angry, so full of rage and hatred that he was going crazy with it. He says, yeah, you know when I was going actually crazy? It's when I didn't believe in the resurrection. And now that I believe in the resurrection, I'm actually fully in my right mind. I'm real and rational. I want you to see what Paul, that Paul makes a rational case here. And for those of you here, here this morning and you doubt Christianity and doubt the story of the resurrection, listen, scoffing is really not an option. You need to actually go do some study. You need to do the hard work. You have to realize this. You think, you think you walked in here today, maybe somebody dragged, you're like, man, we're going to go get it from brunch. We're going to get some pancakes. And if we do that, maybe you'll go to church with me. All right, so you got tricked into coming. I'm sorry. All right, and you're here and you doubt Christianity, but you're, none of you are, at least I hope none of you are like Paul. You know what Paul wanted to do? He wanted to kill us all. 
And so I don't think any of you are at that, that place. You see, Paul was hated Christians, and yet he was convinced. Why? Because he was faced with the reality of the resurrection. Scoffing is not an option. You need to actually do your homework. Charles Murray, who wrote, is a New York Times bestselling author and a fairly known kind of public intellectual. He wrote the, this book, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead. He said this, I can be sure that what many, what many of you think because of your generation of high IQ college attending young people has been as thoroughly socialized to be secular as our counterparts in preceding generations were socialized to be devout. So he's saying, you've been socialized to be secular. Whereas my previous generations were socialized to be devout Christians. Some of you grew up with parents who were not religious and you've never given religion a thought. Others of you went to Sunday school as a child and went to church with your parents in adolescence. But left religion behind as you were socialized by college. By socialized, I don't mean that you studied theology under professors who convinced you that Thomas Aquinas was wrong. You didn't study theology at all. None of the professors you admired were religious When the topic of religion came up, they treated it as dismissively or as a subject of mere humor. But Murray went on to say, this is how I I treated Christianity. But then Murray said, his wife started going to a church and he was forced to hang out with Christians and started to force to to actually hear their arguments. And he says this, what you will find, he says, in the church, you will encounter people whose intelligence, judgment, and critical faculties are as impressive as those of your smartest atheist friends. They have learned to reconcile faith and reason, yes, but beyond that, they persuasively convey that they are ways of knowing that transcend intellectual understanding. They exhibit in their own persona a kind of wisdom that goes beyond just having intelligence and good judgment. This man is not a Christian. He's an agnostic. And yet what he would say is, my goodness, listen, you've been convinced that Christianity is wrong, but you've never actually read a Christian theologian or the Bible. You might have some work to do. The other option is this. So you can scoff. I don't think that's really reasonable, though. The other thing you can do is you can surrender. You can surrender. In the language of our passage here, the language of Jesus to Paul, is you can kind of quit kicking against the goads. The shepherd's trying to get you this way, and you're going this way, and finally you can say, all right, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to surrender to the leading of the Lord. Now understand, this is going to take, this is going to take more than simply seeing the rationality of the resurrection. You're going to need to be persuaded but for many of you, you're going, man, I, okay, I see the reasonability of the resurrection. Now, I, I'm really, a, man, some of these implications, that's pretty amazing. If, if the, the resurrection of the dead is true, the implications of that are amazing for my life, if I truly believe that. Well, here's the issue. You're going to have to surrender before you actually become fully persuaded. Before you can enjoy the delights of the power of the resurrection, you actually have to give yourself over to it. Let me give you this illustration just to show you what I mean by that is if I am uh, an employer looking and examining an employ- a possible employee, and they come to me, and we do all kinds of Myers-Briggs and Right Path and Strength Finders and the Enneagram, and we, every, everybody's doing all kind of scientific and the non-scientific, <clears throat> the Enneagram, and we, uh, we, we're, we're like, oh my goodness, we're doing all these kind of interviews with them, and we're looking at it and going, oh man, this guy is such a good candidate, but you go to your boss before you hire this guy, and you just go, I, I want empirical evidence without a shadow of a doubt that this guy's going to be a great employee. And your boss will say to you, I'm sorry, you will never know that. You'll never be fully convinced that he's a great employee until you hire him. And by the way his work, he actually shows that he's the perfect employee for this position. In other words, what I'm saying to you is this, is you need to surrender. You'll never fully understand the beauty of the resurrection and the power it has in your life until you surrender to it. And so you see that it's rational and you go, okay, it's rational and reasonable. I'm going to give myself over to it. 
I see its implications, but I want to experience them existentially. And so you surrender to it. So we go to the table this morning. I'm going to drive us there now for just a moment. Flannery O'Connor said this, and this is where we're going to end. In the voice of the misfit, in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, another story, she said this. If Jesus did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. That's the surrender piece. And if he did not rise, if he was not resurrected, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left as best you can. So which will you choose? I hope you choose surrender. And if you have done that, come with me to the table of mercy. If you're serving, please come forward and we'll serve communion together and partake together this morning as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us evidence to it. So gracious God, I pray for those in this room right now who are challenged by the reasonability of the resurrection. God, I pray that they would not be lazy, but they would actually, where their conscience, where the Spirit of God may be poking at them with the goad, that they would listen, they would do study, that they would do work, that they would consider the implications of the resurrection, the power that it could have to provide for them the greatest needs of their life, to answer, to fulfill their life like they never imagined anything would fulfill it. Gracious God, we come to celebrate what it took for you to win for us the blessings of forgiveness and light and hope and sanctification and your delight. It took your son entering this world and dying on our behalf and taking our sin upon himself. And so, gracious God, we set aside this bread and this cup, the bread representing your body and this cup representing your blood shed for us. And we thank you. And we remember it. And Lord, God, I pray that your spirit would now give us your grace through these elements. That you would grow us and draw us closer to you in intimacy with you. We ask this through the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.